Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is author and award-winning food journalist, Summer Miller. We talk about her first book, New Prairie Kitchen, which won a 2016 Nebraska Book Award for nonfiction, and was heralded by Oprah Winfrey's Private Chef as a love letter to the heartland. Miller talks about balancing being a creative and a mother who works full-time, her recipe for developing recipes, and the intersection of food and love and life. Food is full of exploration of the human experience. Sometimes dinner is just dinner, but sometimes you're saying, I love you. And sometimes you're saying, I'm sorry. And I think that there's just a lot to be said in that. There's a lot of artistry with that. Summer Miller is an author and award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in Eating Well, Saveur, Every Day with Rachel Ray, Edible Omaha, Edible Feast, and Grit, among others. Miller currently works as the senior executive editor for Susie Carachet's media company, The Mediterranean Dish. In her former life, she was a humanitarian aid worker in South Africa, served as the editor-in-chief of The Reader, executive editor of Neighborhood News, and spent time as a public relations professional. Her first book, New Prairie Kitchen, Stories and Seasonal Recipes from Chefs, Farmers, and Artisans of the Great Plains, was heralded by Oprah Winfrey's Private Chef as a love letter to the heartland and won a 2016 Nebraska Book Award for nonfiction. Summer Miller, welcome to Lives. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. What stands out to you when you think back to those kind of halcyon childhood days? Well, I mean, I'm born and raised in Omaha. I grew up in South Omaha. You know, I grew up with a large blended family. So my parents were divorced and I had two full-blooded brothers, three half siblings, and then there were six step siblings and we lived in a three bedroom house. <laughs> so I grew up very poor, but had a really lovely extended family, really involved in the lives of my grandparents and they were involved in the lives of mine still. My one grandmother is going to be 90 in August and the other one is 90. It will be 93 this year. So very strong, influential women in my life and my mother as well. So, you know, I grew up in a garden from the time I was you know, knee high to a grasshopper. That was childhood, I guess, in the 80s. You had a lot of freedom. <laughs> Did you spend a lot of time outdoors and were you in a sort of more rural setting, a more urban setting? What, no, what was I was very like? urban. Yeah, no, I mean, South Omaha, grew up in South Omaha. I went to high school at Central. We walked across L Street, Q Street, which is when we were six years old. Um, you know, it was just cross at the lights kind of thing and know what you're doing. We had a ton of freedom. It was very much, you know, you leave the door at eight in the morning and you don't come home until the street lights come on. And when you talk about the eighties and that kind of thing, I watch stranger things. My kids are teenagers now or almost teenagers. And I watch stranger things with them and they were like, where are the parents? I'm like, that's how it was. You just got on your bike and you left. And we actually did go to the army surplus store and we <laughs> did do strange things, you know, and, you know, took the bus all over the city when we were 11 and 12 years old and it was fine. So, you know, the oversight that kids have today, I think is so different than what I had growing up, but no, we just had a big garden and big yards and my grand, my maternal grandmother gardens, my mom gardens, I garden. So always been part of life. 
How did being an author, how did writing, how did words, language uh, first show up in, in your life? Uh, in a couple of ways. I think one, when you grow up in a big, quiet, like huge family and you're actually an introverted person, you know, it's a great place to escape. And I was always a big reader. I think it was also just a way for me to rearrange the world and make sense of it. You know, from a very early age, I, I still have my first journal from when I was nine years old and it's hello kitty. You know, and so I think that I I was just probably naturally drawn toward it in the first place through my personality. And then my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, Dr. Rita Price, when she was, she was working on her PhD when we were younger. Uh, she worked at the tax center at OPS and helped with all the reading programs through OPS. And this was, you know, of course, decades ago. So she was working on her PhD and we were a part of that process. And so I remember reading into microphones and reading stories and then she was going to school in Lincoln. So she, at that time, the speed limit was 55 miles an hour on the interstate. So it took a full hour to get to Lincoln and my brothers and I would go with her to file her dissertations. And so in this again, the eighties, she would drop us off at Morrill Hall, go defend her dissertation or meet with her professors or whatever, and then bring us back. But every time on those trips, she drove a brown Toyota Camry and she had steno pads and she would let us pick a steno pad. And then she always had fun pens, like, you know, like pens with a teddy bear stamp on the top and pens with a heart stamp on the top. And I distinctly remember her saying, I want you to take all the notes of the things you see driving by the window. And so that was how she kept me quiet in the car. Um, I can't remember if my brothers did anything with that or not, or if they had something else, but that's what she said was to write down what you see. And so that's, I believe how I got started and it really um, was just, she basically trained me to be an observer of life. And to this day, I'm a very descriptive writer, right? If you read New Prairie Kitchen, it's very descriptive. And if you read essays, it's, it's very descriptive writing. Um, and I think that that's probably from her. And until I was probably 35, I probably still took all my, all my notes on steno pads. How did you develop into you know, the, the career that you do pursue now, which is journalism. I guess part of me wants to say that I was very intentional in decisions that I've made in my life, but a lot of times things just happened and I followed, you know, I went as the way opened basically. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that in some ways journalism and that too, when I was in college, I was, I worked full time as a waitress or a bartender. I put myself through school thanks to Pell grants and working and loans. And I think that it was just a matter of like, I liked to read and I liked to write. And that's just where I, I knew those were things that I liked. And I didn't know what kind of a career. I am really good at not listening to other people's advice. Um, so I remember when I was in school and I was getting a degree in English and everybody said, well, you should be a teacher. You should be a teacher. And I have lots of teachers in my family. My grandmother was a teacher who obviously I admire and love, um, but I did not want to be a teacher. And I felt like that was a B plan to what I really wanted to do, which was just to read and write. And I had no idea how you would make a career out of that. I was also a little anti-establishment and probably still am to this day. And so I can't remember how I ended up. I like when I was at Lincoln, I worked at um, my first internship was under Hilda Roz at the Prairie Schooner. And that was also a very formative experience. She was my professor. And then I had my internship with her. And I thought for sure I would go into literary publications or things like that. She was the type of editor that you did not disturb. Like she was in her office and you were the one who was combing through submissions, like a 19 year old kid, like assessing these people's brilliant writing and work and that kind of stuff. And, um, and I was terrified that I would miss something. And I remember finding one poem that I thought was brilliant, but I wasn't sure because I'm 19 and what do I know? 
And I knocked on her door and I felt very timid about the whole thing. And, and I said, I just really want to show you this. I think it's, I think it's a good one. And then I had asked her, how do you know, like, how do you know what happens if you miss it? Like what happens if there's a gem in this and your foible led to it not being in the book or not being in the um, publication? And she was like, you will, you're going to miss it. There's poems that I've passed on that ended up in other places that were brilliant. And I didn't see it at the time for whatever reason. And she was like, you're going to miss it. For whatever reason, that bit of advice, which I actually just gave to somebody that works for me the other day, uh, I guess it gave me permission to not know what I was doing. It gave me permission to just learn. It gave me permission to do my best. So that was another informative moment, right? And I think that I've just had a series of those or formative moment. I've just had a series of those at different times in my life. When I finally did pursue journalism as a career, the reader was at the beginning of things, right? It was very counterculture. The World Herald had one music column in it. And the world, the reader at the time was very arts and culture focused. And I knew I wanted long form writing. I didn't want to do newspaper journalism. And the reader was the closest thing in the city for that. And um, I got connected through there. I was there for a long time. And John Heaston, who's the publisher of the reader, which I know you've had on this show, to this day is a very dear, close friend of mine. He was another person that just pushed me out of my comfort zone all the time. I think mostly because he had to, like I had to go get the story and I couldn't just be shy and hang out in a room. (laughs) I had to go and meet people and do stuff. But, you know, all of those experiences kind of led me to where I am now. What was the movement then from that kind of journalism to a focus on food? Yeah. So I was a serious, it was society. It was practicality at at the base of who I am. I'm a very pragmatic person. And I think when you grow up poor and you grow up without a lot of resources, I know you don't romanticize the need for an income. Right. And so part of that is just being resourceful. So this is quite a story. Like, I don't know, this is going to take the rest of our time together. Uh, So the transfer to food, a couple of things had happened. One, I was at the reader and I just knew that I was done. I don't always know where I'm going, but I always know when I'm tired of being where I am. And this wasn't anything about the publication. The reader was a beautiful publication. I'm sad that it's going away, but uh, it was such a great thing for the city for so long. And I'm so glad that I was a part of it. But I was just, I'd been there for a long time. I was ready for something different. I was in my late twenties or mid twenties and I was being recruited to go into public relations. And so that's how I ended up doing PR for Cox And I did PR for a couple of years and it was really great to work in a huge company, but I also realized I don't think I, I like huge companies. I worked with great people. I had great examples of leadership. I learned a lot from the leadership there, things that I still use today in my own leadership, but I really missed making content. Uh, And I realized that I was a content person. And when you work in PR, you're talking about other people's content, right? And you're, you're troubleshooting and crisis communications and giving white pages and talking points. And it didn't fill my heart. So I had actually decided I was going to leave PR and go. Um, I'd always wanted to work in New York publishing. Well, let me back up. I, my husband and I, but at this time, Steve and I, my husband were married. We had been trying to have a family and I couldn't get pregnant. So now I'm like, I don't know, how old am I? I'm in my, I'm 30. 31, something like that. And I'm like, I don't want to be at Cox anymore. I've already worked at the reader. I knew I didn't want to go to the World Herald and there weren't a lot of options for publications in Omaha at the time. Right. So this is where our earlier conversation about resentment and marriage and those types of things happen. 
And so my husband didn't want to move out of Nebraska and I didn't see a lot of career opportunities for me here. And this is pre the digital revolution of, you know, everybody working from home and all this kind of stuff, right? So you have to go back in time a bit. So as we had been trying to have a family, I'm in my early thirties, I can't get pregnant. And so I'm like, you know what, if I don't have a biological clock, I'm going to just focus on other things we can adopt later. It'll be fine. So I actually, on a whim, I did what all people do. And I Googled, what should I do with my life? (laughs) And I ended up reading a book that had an influence and I ended up applying for uh, the publishing program, the master's publishing program at NYU just on a whim. I didn't think I would get in. I don't even know that I told my husband that I did it. Like it was just a thing. And I was like, I can go do that for a couple of years and then come back. So I actually did get in. And then I was sitting there looking. I remember when the letter came across, um, it was an email and was saying that I got accepted. And I was like, well, hell now I have to do something. Now I have to make a decision. Something has to happen with this. So I ended up putting in my notice. I was in leadership at Cox. I put in a long notice and um, was planning to go to NYU for grad school and in publishing. And I had my stuff set up there and told my husband and he was like, look, I've been trying to convince you to stay here for years. And if this is what you want, then you should go. And we weren't getting divorced or anything. We were just going to do, I was going to do my thing. He was going to do his. Anyways, just because it was my turn, just because it was happenstance, I don't know. My back blew out completely. I blew three discs in my back, like while putting a tomato plant in a garden. Like it was the most non-interesting thing in the world. (laughs) And then in the month that I was my, my notice for my job, um, I was going to orthopedic surgeons. I was getting all sorts of things. I was only 30. So people weren't sure what was going on and or 31 and getting shots. And I'd been on more drugs and medications in my life than I'd ever been on. And once you quit a job, they don't exactly take you back all the time. (laughs) So basically I was supposed to be, my last day of work was a Friday. I was supposed to be at work or in flying to New York on Sunday and in class on Monday morning. And I went into my orthopedic surgeon's office saying, you have to fix this. Like I'm getting on a plane, very stubborn person, not sure that like clearly I had not been listening. And my surgeon just was like, I don't know what to tell you. Like you're not going you're never going to be able to sit on the plane. You're not going to be able to drag luggage across New York city. Like this isn't happening. I'm scheduling you for surgery on Monday. (laughs) So then I go home, I'm now unemployed and I quit a lucrative job to go do this thing. My husband takes me into the surgical center to have back surgery on Monday morning and I'm hooked up to all the IVs and the charge nurse, they're rolling me in to the surgery and the charge nurse is reviewing everything And she goes, wait, you didn't take a pregnancy test. And I was like, it's okay. I'm infertile. You don't have to worry. Let's just get this done. Because in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have the surgery. I'm going to get this taken care of. And then I'm going to be back on my plan. Like I'm very driven, very focused. Don't mind taking risks. And um, and she's like, no, no, no. This is an x-ray guided surgery. You have to have it. And you're a woman of a certain age. So it's just protocol. And I've never been happier in my life for the the hall monitor type personality. Um, so So they unplug me from everything take me off of everything. They have me go take a pregnancy test and roll me into this different room. And a ton of time passes because I think they just moved on to the next thing. And then suddenly somebody comes in and tells me, yeah, we're not going to have your surgery today. And I'm thinking, well, now I got out of the queue and this is done. And I ended up uh, being pregnant. So while we had wanted to have a family, I was not planning on, I was hoping I would be gainfully employed (laughs) and not broken, having not a broken body uh, while this happened. But that is not how it worked out. So to get back to the point of how did I transition into food? When I left the reader and I went to Cox, 
I had covered a few child homicide cases and I had covered a really intense foster care case and I was just burned out on it. And I didn't know anymore how telling stories was helping the world. I'd felt like I was exposing people and I couldn't reconcile that. And I had always believed that in the power of storytelling, I still do. So then I went into public relations and, you know, realized that wasn't for me, wanted to go back into telling stories. And in the process of that, found out that I was pregnant and that my body was really not in good shape. And so the food started because I wanted to be of service. I couldn't be of service from a news agenda anymore. That was hard for me. And so it was really a matter of I'm stuck at home, right? I have, I was put on bed rest for months. I had, it was a long, it took me six years to fully recover. My legs and my back and my body was so weak. Like my husband had to help me put pants on. He had to help me. Like I couldn't sit for any extended period of time because of how this all worked out. And so I could stand. So I couldn't go and get an office job again and sit somewhere. And so, and I could cook. So I went to John and I said, can you let me, I'm noticing this trend in local food. Will you just let me write this column? And I got paid a whopping 50 bucks (laughs) to write this column on local food for the reader. And I said, I just want to talk about these people and just tell this story. And I was throwing myself a pity party. I was mad that I wasn't where I wanted to be. I felt terrible that I took a big risk with our finances as a family and it didn't pay off. I didn't know how to reconcile that because I had always been a person who believed in jumping and that you're going to figure it out. And I 100% have confidence in my ability to make it work. And I never put into play that my body might not cooperate with me on that and that there would be another, I couldn't, you can't just will yourself always. That was probably my first reckoning with that in my life. And I was, I don't know, I just needed to work through a ton of stuff. So I started writing about these things because I just, and I wrote about it in the book, like I just was seeking inspiration. I just wanted to be around people that went for it. I wanted to be around people who tried something. I wanted to be around people that believed in a different path. And I just wanted to know if it would work. Right. And so I literally looked on a map, drew a circle around Omaha and said, I'm going to investigate these places that are within three hours of where I live. And some went a little outside as the book went on, but for the most part, that's kind of how it happened. And so the practicality part of it was that, you know, like I said, I could cook and I could write. And so I'm going to marry these two things. The other part of that, when we talk about culture and how society was shifting at the time, newspapers are crumbling, right? Digital is starting to, to rise and had been rising for a while at that point. And when I looked at from a business perspective, being a freelance writer, the beauty of being a journalist is you can be a generalist, right? And when you work on a certain beat, you get to know people and then you switch that beat because you don't want to become friends necessarily because you have to cover them, right? And so once you get too familiar, you switch and do another beat, but you get to learn about a lot of different things. And it's what I love the most about being a writer and what I love the most about being a journalist. When it went into food, to be a freelance writer, I need to be able to build sources and build relationships to make this economically viable. If I have to build up new, new sources and new research and new everything from scratch every time I shift to the topic like you do in journalism, I'll never be able to make a living at this. But I also knew myself well enough to know I needed to pick a topic that was diverse enough 
to be able to go in a lot of different ways should my interest change. And so food, you have the service of food and recipes and that kind of stuff, right? You have the political, social aspects of food. You have environmental aspects of food. So there's just a, food is a really broad topic that can impact lots of different things. So I felt like it was vast enough where I could learn and have a solid foundation and then be able to go off in different areas with it and make a living and support my family. And that's how it happened. (laughs) You penned an essay for Eating Well, an award-winning essay called The Dinner Dance. That essay explored the intersection between food and love. It's available online. People can go read that. To what extent for you is preparing meals, creating recipes, writing about food, and, and how we behave as people, as families, as communities behave around the uh, tradition of food, a form of making sense of the world and yourself? And there, there are two different things. We say sometimes in the internet world, right, working for blogs, working for websites, food specific service websites that, you know, it's okay. You're making chicken for the internet, like calm down. Right. You don't have to, don't get too worked up. We'll, we'll solve whatever X, Y, Z problem is. Um, So there is a piece of it that's purely functional. Right. And I think for part of that, I had to reconcile when I shifted from like news and hardcore storytelling to like what value happens in writing recipes, right? Like how meaningful is that in the world? There's a, million chicken recipes in the world. Do you really need one more? And we could have a whole conversation just about that. But I also, it was at a time when everything was being almost overhyped, right? Everything was being so sensationalized and our idea of what meaningful food was, was very elite. And I write about chefs, right? And their beautiful food and the artistry and the craft of it. And that is meaningful and it's good. And I don't have any problem going to a nice restaurant and spending a good portion of my income on it. But I also believe that there are and has been historically millions of women that have been cooking meals for a millennium (laughs) that are unsung uh, heroes. And when you look at the foundational experience of cooking a recipe, It is a person trying to serve their family, trying to manage a budget with that money, trying to do their best for their health and their well-being against a structure of constant pressure, right? Time, resources, even emotional weight of the food that they're cooking, right? And if, if you can create something that is good and helpful for them, in the smallest way, I think that that really matters. Like, and I'm not trying to like overvalue a chicken recipe, right? But if you are a person who can create something and care that that person doesn't waste the $30 that they spent on that to feed their family for the week, that matters to me because I came from a family where, you know, we ate spaghetti for years because it was the cheapest thing that you could get, right? And then whatever came from the garden. And so I just have a great respect for that. And I do believe that you can feed people well if you're respectful of that. So that's the service part of it, right? The emotional connection of using food as a way to evaluate the world and evaluate my own life, right? The dinner dash was very much about a fight with my husband and all these like 
microaggressions that happen in a marriage that get undiscussed or brushed over just because life happens, right? And you're busy and these un, unspoken things that just happen. But I think that it's, it's relatable. You know, everybody eats. And I think that food is full of exploration of the human experience. Sometimes dinner is just dinner, but sometimes you're saying, I love you. And sometimes you're saying, I'm sorry. And I think that there's just a lot to be said in that. There's a lot of artistry with that. And I think it's easy for me. It's an easy cover up, maybe. You know, I don't know. You can use it as a, as a metaphor. <laughs> that screaming chicken in the oven was not just chicken. Well, there was a line in the dinner dance, which stood out to me. You said, it's a tricky thing to write about nourishment. And so I'm wondering what are the particular challenges of being a writer, the writing about this subject of food related topics? as opposed to other forms of writing or journalism? I think any form of storytelling has the ability to impact another person, right? You have the ability to like relate. And I think that that's what we're all trying to do. Like when I wrote that essay, I had a woman who's probably a middle-aged woman, just like I am, reach out to me. I'm not easy to find from that perspective, from like the, that was originally published in print. And so um, my email wasn't associated with it. It was originally published in the magazine. Um, so they would have had to seek me out online and then find, find me and find an email. And they actually sent it to an old work. <laughs> it wasn't even through eating well. Like it went, they did this whole circle to find me. But this woman wrote me this letter and just said, you know, I'd been trying to figure out how I felt for years now. And your essay, your essay explained it beautifully which was a really, that's why you write, right? If I, if I just wanted to write about my own feelings and not relate to another person, I would journal, right? But if you're going to write memoir, if you're going to write essay, anything personal, your goal is to connect with another person, right? Your goal is to maybe lessen their burden and maybe your own. And so I think things like that, whether it's about food or any other type of, of memoir essay writing, that's kind of the goal. At least it is for me. We were chatting off air a little bit about New Prairie Kitchen. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit about what was the genesis for the book and what were you hoping to achieve with it? I think, first of all, I never planned to become a recipe writer. That book, granted, I edited it and, you know, made all the recipes and cleaned up the recipes and things like that. But um, my purpose was to tell a story with it. And I wanted to tell the story of, of the Midwest. Working in national media, I work for a lot of East and West Coast publications, both digital and print. And I know the conversations that are, there's definitely a regional bias, right? About what's happening in Nebraska and, and any kind of value. And this is especially, you know, New Prairie Kitchen was published eight years ago, but it took me four years to write it. So, you know, you're talking 12 years ago, <laughs> things were perceived very differently then. Like I said, I was seeking inspiration and I have always found it in people. I think that we live incredible lives and I am endlessly curious about becoming just how we become. Um, how did you become a farmer? How did you become a chef? How did I become, you know, like, how are you doing this? Like what led you to this moment of interviewing people in a studio in Omaha, Nebraska? Those journeys are endlessly fascinating to me. 
And I think from a local food movement, which is what I was writing about in New Prairie Kitchen, I was deeply curious about how all of these people were converging to try to change the fabric of our community and our culture from an agricultural perspective, from a dining perspective. Growing up in Omaha, Nebraska, I was a vegetarian for like 12 years. And I remember when you couldn't get anything at a restaurant that was, it was like the most foreign concept in the world. What do you mean you don't want steak? And I remember there was a restaurant down on 13th street called Daisy Maze. Revolutionary, right? This is in the early nineties, I think. The food and the storytelling through New Prairie Kitchen was about trying to give credit where credit was due for the people that were here. You know, we're not just a flyover state. There are wonderful examples of art and community and culture and food and dining and, you know, you name it, right? We have it too. And I wanted to recognize that. And I thought, who better to recognize that than somebody who's from here? Like we keep waiting for, I think so often, both in our personal lives and professionally, we wait for outsiders, just anybody to tell us it's okay. Like, oh, you're validated now because you were written about in this place or, you know, somebody mentioned you over here, but you can be validated no matter what. And I think New Prairie Kitchen was successful because it was almost like local girl makes good on promise you know, to, to tell stories and to care and to say, you know, hey, look at this and notice, notice these people who do amazing things. And the way that food works is like a food writer will, or a chef will, because a chef cares about food and, and interesting ingredients and using this as an art form, they'll do something interesting with a, with a vegetable, right? A vegetable that, that let's say, 15 years ago, kale was not in a supermarket. Let's use kale, which some people might say is not worthy of conversation, but let's use kale. Somebody somewhere, some chef decided that kale would be an interesting ingredient to work with. And so they took this ingredient that was relatively unknown, at least in Omaha, and decided to put it on a menu and do something beautiful with it, right? And so because that farmer is growing that kale for that chef, Anything left over ends up at a farmer's market. And then a random person like me, a journalist, will come by and decide, oh, this is interesting. What is this? And then I'll play with the kale, right? And then I might have it at the restaurant of the chef. And then suddenly I write a story in some magazine about kale, right? And then suddenly the average grocery store shopper has learned about kale and now they want to try kale, right? And it's this whole thing, right? And so if we have people who are curious, Right? And who are willing to investigate and explore, whether it's food or people or tapestry, you know, they can create a much more interesting society for us all to live in. And I feel like that is incredibly valuable. And food just happens to be a medium that I do it through, food and writing. You've written that recipe development is the balance between creativity and science, friendship and mentoring. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about those ingredients. And pun intended. Yeah. Um, I guess one, again, just back to my own personality, I really love problem solving. Like I could dive deep into something. And if I were going to just probably do one thing, being able to drill down on recipes is just really fascinating to me. I love working with recipes that don't quite work and trying to find out why. I love the research behind it. I love dialing things in and trying to simplify them too. So when I do recipe development, I typically will test it for three different in three different phases. One is just the creation of flavors and I'll do that in various ways. And so I'll play with different spices, different mixes and do just sample testing of stuff. And then it's just putting the whole thing together. And that's a whole another process of, okay, what does it look like when we layer it with whatever other ingredients might be involved? 
And then there's the final process of, okay, what's necessary? Can I simplify this for the home cook? Can I, do we need to have all of these dishes? Can we, you know, use the same pot for X, Y, Z thing? Is somebody really going to both puree and chop something? Probably not. You know, nobody at home has a sous chef. And you, when you work with chef recipes, a lot of times they're, you know, they are used to thinking of restaurants. And so they, they, sometimes they can be more complex and then you have to simplify them and say, okay, the home cook, this might be beautiful when somebody else is doing the dishes, but it's not when, (laughs) when you're doing the dishes. So we need to like, think about how can we still have these flavors in this experience, but with a little less work. Cause there's no one, there's not a dishwasher. There's you who's the cook and the dishwasher and the thing. So you know, from that perspective, I just really like that part of it. You talked about kale, but you said, you know, 15 years ago, people probably weren't talking about kale in the same way as they are now. So what's next? Uh, I'm just curious about, as you look at the world of food, what's interesting you, what do you think is interesting people beyond you? Yeah, I think like as far as where we headed in the world of food, I think constantly expanding palettes of different flavors and cultures. I think that that information is just more readily available. I think those ingredients are more readily available. You know, even if something is not in a well-stocked grocery store or or Whole Foods or Penzi Spices, you can get almost everything online um, these days, which is interesting when you go from being like a local food person to talking about, you know, Aleppo pepper and making sure that <laughs> you have that stocked in your pantry. But I think that people's interest in different flavors and cuisines is going to continue to grow. I still feel in society, I felt this when I was writing the book and I feel that now, like a lot of times people wanted me to talk about like the value of organic produce and organic foods and that kind of stuff. And I, I do find value in those, don't get me wrong. But I also feel like as a society, I think when you see endless lines of people out at Burger King or at, you know, and you're paying 20, 30 bucks for that, it's not cheap, that whether or not something is organic is not really probably where we need to start. I think that just making sure that people feel comfortable cooking, that we can say, yeah, you really can do this in 20 minutes and have it be 20 minutes. And that's the same amount of time that you're going to be in that drive through The drive through you don't have the dishes to wash, right? You don't have the time at the grocery store. Like, so you have to look at what the problems are and then try to solve for the problem. And so many times when I was working specifically, I was talking about local food and things along those lines. It was like, well, people are spending X number of dollars on their kids' soccer shoes or they're spending X number. They should spend that at the grocery store or at the local farm. And I think that that's great, but the kid still wants to play soccer. So like, how do we meet both needs? How do we acknowledge, yeah, this kid wants to play soccer. Let's buy him soccer shoes and make sure the family has that. And then let's talk about what you can do at home to still have a really healthy diet and the foods that you can put into it. And how can you cook that? And I think if you don't have those skills to start with, then it's really hard. I work for the Mediterranean dish now and those foods and flavors aren't necessarily native to my understanding, right? I've had a big learning curve with a lot of that, a lot of the foods beautiful and it still is very healthy, vibrant food. And I eat healthy, full foods, um, whole foods. And so that crossover is the same, but you know, I didn't grow up putting cinnamon in my ground beef. Right. And so there's just a, a learning curve when you try new skills. And for some people that learning curve is chopping an onion. I feel as if there is a lot more commerce around real ingredients, real food being shipped to your home with instructions on how to prepare it as if we have, as you said, lost those skills to be comfortable in a kitchen with equipment, with knives, 
cutting an onion. And I don't know if that's part of what you're describing, this reacquaintance of a generation that perhaps isn't familiar with the ability to just prepare a meal from basic ingredients using basic tools. Oh, I think we've definitely lost it. But I also just think it's a, um, it's a distribution of labor too, right? Even for me, a person who does like to cook and has those skills, right? I can chop an onion pretty quick. But there's a big difference between me working creatively with Pandora on in the background and trying to problem solve a recipe and develop something that is beautiful uh, versus the daily grind of getting dinner on the table for my, you know, teenage son and my preteen daughter. And after I get off work at six o'clock and before we run to the next thing, because my kids are at the stage now where they have their own lives too, but nobody can drive a car. So, you know, I hate that we don't recognize that, right? Like, oh, we put all this pressure of you should create this meal and you should, it should have this thing and it should be balanced in this way. And go to the grocery store for three hours on Saturday and also stop by the farmer's market and also make sure that you're, there is an insurmountable amount of pressure. If we want to go back to what started this conversation about the eighties, right. And we left when the streetlights were on, or, you know, we left in the morning and didn't come back to the streetlights came on that parent at that time had an endless amount of time to do a lot of things, right. Without kids around necessarily, because we were off raising hell somewhere else. And what has happened simultaneously with this, right. Is the marketing of food and I don't mean like HelloFresh and that kind of things. I mean like the celebrity chef culture that came up, the food network that came up where like all of this food became suddenly very complicated. But when that also became the standard of home cooking in middle-class culture, we look at what is above us, right? As the standard that we want to achieve. That's why magazines have sold for eons. That's why these television shows are great because that's something that we want to aspire to, right? And then we try to, and then we realize, oh, this isn't an easy thing to do because this person is on a TV show, right? (laughs) Or this person has spent six hours styling that fish for a photo shoot in a magazine. Like that's not real. And so if we can go back to just saying, look, there is food marketing and then there is dinner for your family. It does not have to be Pinterest worthy to be meaningful for them chances are you're going to have a better experience with your family if you aren't frazzled by the time you put it on the table. Part of that comes with true partnership and your spouses and your children and making sure that we're, everybody eats, everybody contributes to the meal, right? Part of that is being realistic about what is a healthy dinner and what is a meaningful dinner and then not comparing that to Pinterest or Instagram or the latest chef thing on the Food Network. And I, when I started writing New Prairie Kitchen, a lot of this stuff was happening, right? These, all these different things were converging. And I started teaching cooking classes at uh, preschool because there were all these parents that didn't know what to do. And I just wanted to keep it simple for them. And I just really felt like I had to counter, because I'm part of it, right? I'm the machine that writes about these stories and, and showcases these things and highlights the stuff. But I'm also like, keep it in perspective, even, you know, pasta sauce is still a serving of vegetables. There's nothing wrong with wanting beautiful food, but like, there's also nothing wrong with just chicken and some green beans from a bag. There's really not, you know? 
How have you navigated whatever these challenges happen to have been to work remotely, to be a full-time mother, to be a full-time worker? You know, what, what have been some of the issues and, and how you experienced those? I think you navigate it just like anybody else does. It's just, you just do it, right? You just, it's just what has to be done. So you do it. From working from home, I absolutely understand the appeal, the appeal of it and how once the pandemic hit and a whole bunch of people who had never had a taste of that got a taste of that and thought, man, it's really nice that I can throw in a load of laundry you know, over my lunch break, instead of chatting with Bob down the hall, who I don't even like that much. Right. And so there's definitely benefits of that as a person who's been working from home for 15 years, right. Well, before the pandemic and with young children through teens now, right. My oldest is 14. There are things about it that I love and I'm grateful for when my child is sick, I am there with my child when um, I have to pop out really quick to go in, you know, pick them up from school or something like that. I can do that. I'm 10 minutes away. The other thing is I'm 10 minutes away. So <laughs> my husband is 30 minutes away. So all of those things, just by practical assessment, you're going to be the one that pops in that drops off the lunch that got forgotten that does whatever. And so there's that you're the one who's already at home. So you're going to meet with the plumber every time or the the guy who's going to come fix something, right? Whatever those things are, you're the person who's present for that. And if there's already a person who's present in the home for that, it's not really logical for the person who's 30 minutes away to drive home to meet that person for 15 minutes and then drive back to the office, right? And my husband and I were actually having this conversation one time because we were talking about interruptions. I've only had one year of childcare with my kids at home, one and a half years, um, where they went to an after care program after school. Otherwise, they've been around me as I've worked. And um, we were talking about interruptions and he was like, yeah, well, I'm interrupted all the time at work too, right? Like people come in and they, you know, they knock on my door and we have conversations, that kind of stuff. And he kind of had a, a aha moment. And, and I said, yeah, but there's a big difference between a grown man coming to another grown man and saying, I want to talk to you about X, Y, Z issue. And then for you to say, I can't do that right now. But when it's your eight-year-old who just drew something and you are everything to them, and they want to come into you to show them, you know, the popsicle that they just drew. And you're like, I can't right now. That hits differently. And that's very hard. And so I'm sure I will get to the end of my parenting time, my active parenting time. And I'll be able to reflect in a different way on all of those moments. But I don't know that that is better for either the parent or the child, as opposed to having that child in like a daycare situation and not to say you can't work from home and also have your kids in daycare or just being home with your kids and being able to have those, those moments. The other piece of it is just, I think that you have to have really good boundaries when you work at home, right? Both with your family and with your job, because they can bleed into each other really well. And so it'll be interesting to see how this next wave, because I don't think we're really going back to the office like we were before. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time. The other piece of it is, which I find really interesting, is there is no way you don't use your own home resources to support the business and the economic machine of another company, right? So it's my lights, it's my air conditioning, it's my ink on the printer, it's it's all of those resources, it's my internet. And some, you know, some places give you stipends for that. I know other people have companies where they don't, but it'll be interesting to see how that works too. There are amazing savings for businesses to have everybody working at home. And I don't know that stipends and that, that, that support has really crossed over. And I don't know that people are thinking about that because they're just so happy they get to put their laundry in in the middle of the day, right? Or pop out to see their kids. 
I also think that there's this piece of, I don't know that it's a society. We are good at being present. I know that's such like a buzzword anymore, but like when your work and your home is in the same space, and I'm not saying if you work for yourself, like if you work for yourself, that's different. But if you work for another person and you work from home, I think it's harder to be present. So you might be home with your child, but you probably have your laptop on your lap, right? While that person is sick, right? And so are we nurturing the sick child or are we working in kind of partially tending to and being aware of this ill little person in our presence? And then what does that person really require and what does nurturing mean? And you can get into these much bigger moral complexities, right? Whereas if you did work in an office and you truly took the day off to be with the sick child, you're probably actually present with the sick child, right? But the expectation when you're at home is like, well, you can still work, right? Or you can still do whatever. And I think that's also, I'm not even putting this on businesses or or managers or bosses. Like that's also, I think our own psyche is, you know, an individualistic American population of like, well, I can still get my emails in. I can still do whatever. Right. Um, So there's, there's a lot of complexities to it that are really exciting at first, right? Because all you feel is the flexibility, but there is an isolation and you do have to be really intentional about getting out of your house to learn from other people. And I do feel like there's like relationship equity that can be lost in a remote work environment and you have to actively cultivate it. You also shared with me that you're in a position with your life, with your family, with the way you've structured things or things have been structured around you, that you have a lot of thoughts about being uh, a woman in this so-called sandwich generation. And so I was curious about what does a sandwich generation mean as you're describing that? And what are some of these thoughts you have about being in that sandwich position. I'm tired. I'm a tired middle-aged woman, Stuart. No, <laughs> no I, uh, you know, I think the Santa generation is, you know, where I'm at, you're middle-aged, you have older parents that need support, and then you have younger children that need support, right? And so we're going a million miles a minute between these things. I will also say that having my, I have, a, my father has Parkinson's. One of the things that has changed the way I look at food too is my father's Parkinson's and the struggles that he has with things. And if you would have talked to me 12 years ago about the value of an, of a box of instant potatoes, instant mashed potatoes at the grocery store, I would have probably really had all sorts of thoughts about how it's not good. They're not necessarily, and, and it's bad for the environment because it comes in a plastic bag inside of a cardboard box and you can just buy potatoes, right? And you don't have any of that waste and do whatever. But when you have a person that has issues with grip, and issues with holding things and issues with being able to cook. Those prepackaged products are actually really important to their well-being. So, you know, it changes like you go from kind of an ableist perspective, right? Because I've had so many conversations with people in the food world about pre-cut or pre-peeled oranges inside of a plastic tub, right? Or And those things from the one part of you from an environmental perspective are awful, right? Just grab the orange and peel it. From a person who's incapable of peeling their own orange, that's a totally different deal. And that is nutrition because the other option is fast food, which is, you know, high in sodium, all the other things, right? And so looking through those, through those different lenses really helps and age, age does that, right, too. So 
do you just say, okay, I'm just going to be happy with plastic containers on things that don't need plastic containers or can we find a better solution? So that way the person who needs the support can get the support and have the independence as long as possible. Cause grown men don't want you to peel their oranges for them. It, like they don't want their daughters to peel their oranges for them. Right. They will pick them up pre-peeled at the grocery store. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, so there's those types of things. Right. And then I think again, like there's a really good book called pressure cooker and it talks about just socioeconomic class and food. And it talks about the, all the pressures on, on people, on women in particular um, within families and within support. And I think that so often that is just taken out of the conversations about what's happening. This isn't to say that there are not male caregivers. There are, my dad lives with my brother and his wife, right? I support in other ways, but it's the idea that like, the idea that everything should be 100% all the time and that you don't have to shift or put down one thing in order to prioritize another thing. And that if you do that, if you make that choice, that it's a failure. And I think that that is so unfortunate for all of us to, to have that pressure, that idea of success. And that's success as a daughter, success as a wife, success as a mother, as a son. This idea that you can't ever shift the weight or the balance of something. And that's just not real but we're told that all the time. And I think when you're dealing with people in the Spanish generation, you're trying to take care of young kids and be 100% in their space and there for them and be at all the games and do all the things. And they're also supposed to, you know, help get, you know, ailing parents to doctor's appointments and manage their medications and their finances and that kind of thing. And then just be 100% at your job and be 100% as a wife. And of course you're supposed to be skinny and have good skin and not wrinkles and make time for Botox and, whatever these other pressures are. I think it would just be revolutionary for people, women, just to say, no, like, no, I'm not going to manage all of those things. You know, I won't be 100% for you in this moment. I will when this is done. And I think that we should do more of that in general as a society. Buying food, preparing food, having meals, eating, the, all, all of these things are part of what we do just to, to live. You do it for a business to a vocation, a passion, something you're good at. Does it get boring or tiring? Because you're, you're, you have to do it because you have to eat, but also you're doing it because it's your career. Do you just get sick and tired of, of it at times? I don't watch food shows. I can tell you, like everybody's like, have you seen the bear? And I'm like, no, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen the bear. I don't watch food shows. And I never really have though. Like I've never had cable. Even when I worked for the cable company, I didn't have cable. But yeah, I do. I do get tired of it. And there was a time I got really burned out during the pandemic. So I know a lot of people we were talking about going back to the pandemic about giving you permission to back out of things and to not do things. And that happened in my life too. I know it happened in lots of people's lives, but I also like the world ramped up during the pandemic. And if you worked in digital food magazine, I was working 70, 80 hours a week with kids at home because suddenly like First of all, the, the internet, I worked for a big food company in New York at the time and the internet just exploded with people needing to know how to cook the most basic things, right? Like suddenly the only thing on the shelf was the oatmeal or the only thing on the shelf was the dried beans and you needed somebody to help you do it. And that is one place where it was an honor to be a food service site and to be able to say, look, this is how you do this. It's okay. 
like, yes, you have three, three bags of beans. I'm going to tell you how you can make them edible and we'll, we'll manage this. Right. And so we were creating tons and tons of copy to try to support the American public on how to cook and how to use the food that they didn't normally eat, but they had to eat because that's what was available to them. Right. So that was really exciting, but it was also really exhausting. And then of course you're dealing with all of your own fears of health and well-being, and, you know, your children being home and, my son was in the fifth grade at the time and my daughter was in the third grade. Um, and so after I was fried and burned out, I actually left that company a year and a half ago. And I think part of that was just wanting something new and interesting too. And I was recruited to where I am now. I was actually planning on kind of retiring from the food world or at least digital food media. I was kind of done with it because the other thing that's happening in digital food media is if you Google, if you get on right now, and you Google pea salad, you're going to see 15, 30, hundreds of entries of the exact same looking pea salad because of algorithms, because there are ways to game the system. The idea is that we want to understand the user's intention of finding pea salad. And apparently every single person on the planet who Googles pea salad is looking for the same pea salad. So every other person who makes money off of publishing recipes online is going to recreate that pea salad. And then it's a land grab for who can be at the top of that page in Google because a lot of money is to be made in that page. And what that has done in the food world is it has created the most homogenous, boring, bland food media experience that you could have. Any type of independent media site that is not one of the giants has the potential to try to break through that and to show you a different type of pea salad. Cause maybe you don't like bits of ham and cubed cheddar and mayonnaise in your peas. Maybe you could be exposed to a different type of pea salad. And wouldn't that be interesting to, to learn something different, right? That maybe peas and mint and Aleppo pepper and feta taste delicious together. And you don't have to do it that way, but your Google search is not going to show you that. And you have to have people who are willing to try to take on, you know, the Goliaths of food media to try to break through the pea salad. (laughs) And so that's like one of the reasons why I left was that it was just the same, that you win by sameness in food media and digital food media. So the reason why I asked you that last question is because earlier you talked about a propensity to jump. You knew when you were approaching the end of something. And you've also talked about experiences you've had, uh, sandwich generation, uh, the iniquities and the challenges of the industry, uh, your family life. And it just has me wondering if you feel happy, if there's a next chapter just around the corner for you. Do you feel like you're living into your purpose right now? What do you think there's a change for you coming? I believe 100% in, like I said, going as the way opens. I really do. Like, I don't think that I have ever had a clear idea of where I was headed, but I do always recognize when the next stepping stone arises in front of me. And I've just always been blessed with the courage to, to step on it. And I don't know why I'm like that. <laughs> I just am. I also have a lot of confidence in my abilities to figure things out if they go awry and to change direction and to, you know, shift the course 
And I've done that many times in my life. And like I said, when I left big media a year and a half ago, that was part of that, right? So I had been on the treadmill, the endless going hundred miles an hour treadmill in during the pandemic with the kids, the whole thing. And in, was it 2021? It had to have been 2021, end of 2021. I went on a hiking trip. So I'm a big hiker. It's just kind of where I find peace and solace and quiet and all that stuff. I volunteered with an organization called Climate Ride. And so Climate Ride is, they, by the name, ride bike rides. So it's a lot of cycling. And they do these trips where you can go and hike or ride bikes through different different areas. And then you fundraise for different climate-related organizations as a part of that. Different trips, different places, different fundraising amounts. Because of my back injury, I knew I couldn't do my own hike where I could carry my own pack through. I had to have like a, a person set up the tents and carry the tents. But anyway, so I went on this hike and I volunteered and raised money for them. And then it's really kind of cool because you can pick the organizations that you want the fundraising to go to. So I pick like the Iowa Nature Conservancy and some different, and they distribute to those places. But it was on that hike when I came back and I was like, I cannot keep working at this level and in this way and in this thing, like it just isn't aligning with me anymore. It was the beginning of the end of my time in New York publishing, right? And I left in January of last year and I had no idea where I was going or what I was doing. I did some consulting work in the interim. And then while I was consulting, I had the place where I am now, the Mediterranean dish reached out to me. And I was very hesitant because like I said, I wasn't going to go back into digital food media because I wasn't happy because I don't believe in having the exact same thing a thousand times. Like that's not, that's not the beauty of food to me or people. And I don't know that we're serving anybody. The whole reason why I like looking at recipes or food is because I learned something new from it. And if we're limiting what people can learn, then I don't think I'm doing my job. It was during that interim time that Susie reached out to me and asked me to come to her team. In that experience, I've only been there for 10 months. And in that experience, so much healing has happened and so much growth because she doesn't follow any rules. She's Egyptian. So she has this very like feisty, you know, Mediterranean, I don't know, spirit about her. She's the pea recipe, I'm the pea example we broke the Google barrier with that pea recipe with like, you know, we're not doing that. Cause obviously in the Mediterranean, you're never going to put cube cheddar and ham with your in mayo with your peas. Like that just wouldn't even be a thing, but we wanted to do a pea salad. But the argument is then how do you get people to find your pea salad? How do you get them to try the pea salad with the feta and the Aleppo pepper and the, you know, the mint leaves and all these different flavors that like, how do you break through the ham and cheese pea salad? You know, so that's the constant challenge. And what drives me at the company that I'm at right now is breaking through that to try to bring those different types of flavors and food and just to back that like joy of discovery to the greater internet sphere of food media. And that is, I think that there's a movement to to change that. And I guess it goes back to like, even the reader, like it's all... It's what I'm doing now is basically working for an independent food media site as opposed to a conglomeration that owns, I don't know, 83% of the food media brands. They're all owned by the same place. And so now I'm, I'm back on David's team. He's a biblical reference. 
<laughs> and so, yeah, to answer your question, long, long winded as it is, um, am I happy? Yeah. And I think that I'm working closer to where I had gotten away from. My guest today has been author and journalist Summer Miller. Summer, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Ah, thank you. I've had a wonderful time. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.